My name is Brandon, uh, one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. As she said, we are uh, taking a week to teach on, talk about generosity and hospitality. We're going to talk about them as two sides of one coin. Generosity being uh, the giving of your possessions for the good of others. Hospitality uh, with brotherly love welcoming the outsider. So combined, uh, we're talking about freely giving of your possessions to welcome the outsider. Now, I need to say up front at the beginning of this sermon, uh, last week I was um, uh, walking through this with one of us, one of our members on the whiteboard back over here, and I kind of did the outline. I was like, hey, here's what I'm thinking, and uh, we got done with it, and he said, okay, sounds good, but Brandon, honest question, man, is this a capital campaign sermon? Like, are you trying to raise money with this? Is that what you're uh, doing? Because the minute you say generosity, we're all going to think capital campaign. If you don't know, and understandable, I get it. If, if you don't know, we bought a building uh, that I believe I'm pointing in the right direction for next door. Uh, you can see the dirt getting moved around out there as the uh, renovations approach. So is this generosity and hospitality? Is this a fundraising sermon? The answer is no. Uh, and it's no for two reasons. Reason one, uh, we are going to be talking about the capital campaign every week starting next week for the rest of the year. So get ready. Fair warning, there's your heads up. Reason two, uh, we are an urban church on a holiday weekend. Look around. It means a significant number of us are out of town, visiting family, likely dealing with the travel back to Houston right now as we speak. If we were going to do a fundraising sermon, this would be one of the worst weekends of the year that we could do it. So no, no, that's not what it is. So if it's not a capital campaign sermon, then why this? Is it that greed and materialism suffocate the soul? And we're entering into a season where it's just heightened all around us. Is that why we're talking about this today? No. No. Is it that Jesus taught on money as much as anything? Is it that Jesus knew giving yourself over to the love of money was like walking a tightrope over Niagara? Just danger on all sides. Catastrophic consequences. Is that why? No. No. So why the sermon on this day I will tell you that at the end. For now, I thought that was a lot more fun than you did. <laughs> For now, here's what we're doing. We're going to trace generosity and hospitality, two sides of one coin, from beginning to end in the Bible. And I never get to do alliteration. I, I actually like alliteration, but I never do alliteration. But today, we're doing alliteration. Four C's. We're going to look at it under these four headings. Creation, command, Christ, and the church. Creation, command, Christ, and the church. And so let's talk the first C, creation. If you want to trace a theme running throughout the Bible, here's where you have to begin. You always have to begin with creation. Why? Because the Bible did not start in Genesis 3 with how God responded to sin entering the world. It began with Genesis 1 with creation as the overflow of God's heart. And so if you want to understand a theme running through the scriptures, you trace it back to the heart of God. And the first place we see the heart of God is in Genesis 1 and 2. And so when we look at creation, what do we see? There's a lot that we see. I'm going to highlight a few things. Let's look at verse 26. Chapter 1, verse 26a. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
God created man. When he created man, he created man in our image and in our likeness. Now, there's a lot going on in the words image and likeness, but for here, for now, this is what I want you to see. This is from the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery, which is what um, Tim Keller, who's a, a pastor, um, former pastor in New York, said, if, if you want uh, two resources, the two resources, if you want to understand the scriptures that you need to have, DBI is one of them. And here's, here's what it says about being the image of God in our image. As living image of the living God, Adam bears a relationship to God like that of child to parent. He is made for intimate, reciprocal relationship with God. So God has eternally existed before Genesis 1 as Father, Son, and Spirit in eternal Trinitarian community. And in creation, in creation, that reciprocal, eternal relationship that God has enjoyed and experienced, you and I got invited in. And Adam being made in the image of God, in the likeness of God, he was being invited into the eternal, reciprocal relationship with which God has eternally enjoyed. This is why creation, as we see it as the overflow of God's heart, we see this as relational generosity in creation. Inviting Adam into the eternal relationship that God experienced within him Self. But you notice that it says, in our image. Let us create in our image, the plural our. That's why we go in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So he said, hey, let's, let's create. Let's create in our image. And when we do that, let's create male and female. Male and female in our image. Image. This was, this was God saying, listen, I want to take the eternal communal life that I have shared amongst myself and I want to share it in creation. The way that I'm going to share it is by creating male and female to live in reciprocal relationship with one another. This is saying, I want humanity to experience the communal life that I, Father, Son, and Spirit have eternally experienced. And God created from the overflow of his heart, from the overflow of his eternal life together. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with God generously taking that and sharing it with humanity. There's also hospitality baked into creation. Chapter 2, verse 8 says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. God created a garden, a place of beauty and of provision, and he placed man in the garden. And here's the way I want us to think of the garden. It's not that God just created a world, a world within which he would create man, but within that world that he created man, he would make a home, a home, a place of peace and rest, safety and security, provision. It was a hospitable place for Adam and Eve. It was an expression of the hospitality of God for humanity. Image of God male and female, placed in a garden, the generosity and the hospitality of God in creation. And I didn't even talk about the fact that creation itself, God speaking the world into existence, is an act in and of itself of generosity and hospitality. I didn't talk about how breath, how God giving man breath, the breath with which we complain, was an act of generosity in and of itself. It is unending in Genesis 1 and 2, the generosity and the hospitality of God. But there was a problem. The problem was this. 
It didn't take long for sin to enter the world, for Adam and Eve to disobey, and for this hospitable world to become less hospitable. So when we think about sin, uh, let's think about it this way. Sin's not simply breaking the law of God, although it is that. It's also breaking the heart of God. The heart of God that overflowed into creation, the heart of God that generously took the life of God and shared it with humanity, the heart of God that took Adam and placed him in a garden, breaking that heart of God. And because Adam and Eve did, because they broke the heart of God, because they broke the law of God, verse 23 and 24, the heart of God that put them in a garden, says, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve placed outside at the garden, this hospitable world no longer so hospitable. This overflow of the generous and hospitable heart of God no longer being fully experienced by Adam and Eve as they disobeyed, set outside the garden, and then way back to the tree was guarded. And because this wasn't being fully experienced by humanity, God responds, and he responds with a command. And the command went like this to a man named Abram, Abraham. The command goes, go. Abraham, leave your people. Leave your people and go establish a new people. A people through whom I'm going to bless all people. A people through whom I'm going to extend my hospitable and generous heart to all people. And it's going to look like this. We're going to establish a nation. The nation is going to be called Israel. Israel is going to become the embodiment of my heart for the nations. And this Israel, this nation of Israel, um, the people of God in the Old Testament, they had some what we'll call foundational documents, if you will. The first five books of the Old Testament. I thought about um, citing the five books, but getting it wrong to see if anybody corrected me, but I'm I'm not going to do it. And in these first five books of of the Old Testament, you have commands like this. And these are not, these are not, hey, Israel, I've got an idea. What if we did this? Hey, Israel, here's an idea on how we could live. Here's an optional invitation for the kind of life that you could live. That's not what these are. These are, hey, Israel, as my restored people, this is how we're going to be. This is who we're going to be. It's how we're going to live. And it goes like this. Deuteronomy 10. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Now listen to this command. Love the sojourner. Therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. Hey, Israel, listen, I I know at one point in your nation's history, you guys were slaves in Egypt. And I entered in, I intervened, and I generously led you out. I generously, in your time of exile and slavery, I provided for you a way out. Now, as you were the sojourner in the exile then, I want you to extend the same hospitality and generosity to others that I extended to you. Here's another one, Leviticus 19. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns 
with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Hey, listen, Israel, when, when there's a sojourner, when there's somebody not from your land sojourning through your land, this is how I want you to treat them. I want you to treat them and I want you to love them as you would love yourself. I want you to love them as you would love yourself. This is foundational commands to the people of Israel. Here's who we're going to be. We're going to be a generous and a hospitable people. You are going to be Israel, the people who embody and extend my heart into the world, my generous, my hospitable heart into the world. That's why one commentator, the the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery, again said this. This was this embodiment of God's generosity and hospitality. This was part of Israel's moral and spiritual covenant with God. Let me rephrase that. Part of being in a relationship with God was being a hospitable and a generous people. I'm going to say that one again. I feel like it should sink in a little bit more than it seems like that one is. Part of being in a relationship with God is to be a hospitable and a generous people. Why would that be the case? Because generosity, hospitality, it was baked into the story of Israel. First of all, it was baked into their story of creation. Their understanding of creation ran counter to every other ancient story of creation. The story of creation, according to the Israelites, was this generous, loving God who was creating out of the overflow of who he was. Versus all other ancient Near Eastern gods believing that God is angry and needs subjects and I'm going to create subjects who can meet my needs and I'm going to be demanding. It ran counter to every other other understanding of God out there. And then two, they experientially knew what it was like to be outsiders in Egypt, oppressed, and God generously delivered them. It was baked into their story. Now, I have a serious question. Who in here had parents, when they were kids, say things like this? I want you to do as I say, not as I do. Anybody? Safe space in here. I assume your parents probably are not in the room. No? Not, not as many as I thought. Okay, fair enough. My parents did. Uh, my dad said it all the time, and it was incredibly frustrating. It was, when I was six, seven, eight, it was the first moment when I learned what hypocrisy was, and it drove me insane. It did. Do as I do, not as, no, no. Do as I say, not as I do. This was not the case with God. God was not asking Israel to do for others something God was not willing to do for Israel himself. It was what he did in creation, but it was also what he did throughout their story. In the middle of their captivity in Egypt, it says that I'm going to give you, this is God to Israel, I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. Land, a land flowing with milk and honey. You're in captivity now, but there's a home waiting. Now listen, milk and honey, it doesn't mean much to us today. Milk and honey is found at Kroger. But to them, this was the good stuff. This was God saying, hey, listen, I've got a land flowing with a good wine. I mean, no two-buck chuck for you. I've got the good stuff waiting for you. And oh, oh, this home that's waiting for you. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. This was God saying to them, my generous heart didn't get removed in Genesis 3. It's still there and it's still for you. And I still want you to take this generosity that I am extending to you and I want you to embody it for 
the nations continue to reflect my heart, which is why when we have the book of Proverbs, the, this book of wisdom on how to live as God's restored humanity, how to live the good and the beautiful life, the wise life. You find this in chapter nine, wisdom. Wisdom being the good and the beautiful life living as God's restored humanity. Wisdom has built her house. She has honed her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. Wisdom here, the feast is ready. The table is set. The beasts have been slaughtered. The good wine, it's right there ready for us. And she has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn here. Whoever lacks sense, these are not insults, by the way. She says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Wisdom says this, the good life says this, the food I have, the bread I have, the drink I have, come and share. All in our city, come and share. Come and feast. But later in chapter 9, the woman folly is loud. Folly, the antithesis of the wise and the good and the beautiful life. Folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And whoever lacks a sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. See, here's the contrast. Wisdom says, hey, my, my, my food, my wine, come and feast with me. Wisdom says, be generous, open your table. Folly, the antithesis, antithesis of the good and the beautiful life, says, no, 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 food hidden in secret, stored away for yourself, that's the good life. The good life, the generous life, the folly, the foolish life, the greedy life. So here's the point, woven throughout the Old Testament, the people of God displaying the heart of God. And again, this sits in direct contrast with any understanding of the ancient gods. This was a completely countercultural understanding of the gods. Ancient gods were demanding. They did not give. They weren't generous. They demanded. Here's the thing. It's not just ancient gods, is it? It's modern gods as well. Now, most of us, uh, we, we don't take wood. Uh, we don't saw it up, carve it up, and then stick it on the mantle in our living room and offer some incense and pray to it. We don't do that. But you make money your God and you watch how demanding it is of your life. You make money the thing that you have to have or you can't live without it and you watch how transactional your life becomes. You watch how I have to and I have to and I have to or I simply can't keep up. You watch how your soul shrivels up when money becomes your God. But it will leave you and leave your soul as lifeless as the ancient gods did and it might be why. Jesus taught you can't have two masters. This contrast between the generous God of Israel and the angry gods of the nations is what was meant to be on display, but often it wasn't. 
The story of Israel, the, the narrative of Israel in the Old Testament often looks a lot more like the life of Jonah. Jonah being the famous story of the prophet who ends up in the belly of a fish because God said, hey, go to Nineveh, take my grace that you've received and go communicate it and offer it to them. And he said, no, no, I don't want that. And he ran. And he ran. Take, take what is meant to be for others and he stored it up, hoarded it in for himself. The life of Jonah is a picture of Israel's failure. This was the story of Israel calling to being called by God to embody and extend his heart to the nations. But like a video on a loop, Israel failed and then they failed and then they failed and then once more they failed again until all of a sudden there was silence. 400 years, the people of Israel, the people whom God had formed, whom God had spoken to. Silence. 400 years. Silence. Until. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Silence has ended. The silence was over. The Messiah has come. The Savior is here. And in the angel's announcement that the child is from the Holy Spirit, we have an act of generosity. The Father, through the Spirit, sending his Son into the world. And in the statement that he will die for their, he will save them from their sins, we have a statement of generosity and hospitality that the Son would go to the cross to die to make outsiders insiders. And this is why I said it's two sides of one coin, generosity and hospitality, because it's two sides of one gospel, the father generously sending his son and the son dying to extend the hospitality of God to outsiders, to make outsiders insiders. And what was woven throughout the Old Testament is central to the message of the gospel of Christ, central to it, which is why when we come to the church, church, we find New Testament, our New Testament, littered with texts that implore us, command us to be as the people who have received the grace of God, be a people who offer and extend that same grace to others, that we are to be a generous community, a, ho- a house of hospitality. That's who the church is meant to be. We find in the New Testament passages commanding, not, again, like in Deuteronomy, not, hey, I've got an idea, church, not, hey, here's, here would be a really neat way for you guys to live your life. We find imperatives that we are to care for one another, that we are to take care of the poor, and that we are to happily show hospitality to strangers. Happily show hospitality to strangers, that we're to care for one another. Second Corinthians 9, you will be enriched in every way to be. You will be enriched in every way to be, to be generous in every way. 
you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. This is Paul, the author of Corinthians, a man named Paul, trying to communicate that your abundance is your abundance for the generosity, for generosity to be extended to others. If I could say it this way and try to paraphrase it, you have what you have so that you can be generous with it. You have what you have so that you can be generous with it. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus gave his life away for your good and for mine. And in Christ, we have all that we will ever need. And so we can be open-handed with everything else. This is Paul saying, hey, listen, you need to let the gospel define or redefine your view of possessions. Let the gospel of Christ, the gospel of grace, Jesus coming to give his life away for you so that you could take what you have and give it all away. Let that impact and define or redefine your view of possessions. And then giving to the poor. Galatians 2. Paul, same author, he's about to be sent out to go and preach the gospel. To go from town to town to preach. And the people sending him said this. Only they, they the ones sending him, asked us to remember the poor. The very thing we were eager to do. So here's what we find in the pages of the New Testament. We, we find the preaching of the gospel and caring for the poor going hand in hand. Preaching of the gospel, caring for the poor going hand in hand. There was not a dichotomy between what they believed and how they lived. At least there wasn't intended to be. When the early church thought about gospel living, it was a holistic living. Where would they get this? Why would those two be so connected? Second Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus emptied himself of everything so that you and I might have everything. So what does this mean for us? It means for us at Sojourn, caring for those in need, both in our community and around our community, is not optional to gospel living. It's not um, hey, I've got an idea. It's Jesus became poor so that you could become rich, rich in him so you can be free to take what you have and share it to care for one another. It's to create a generous people so we don't overlook the person on the corner. When we're driving, we'll come to an intersection. We don't know a person's on the corner and stare at our center console. We don't, we don't avoid the discomfort. Look him in the eye. We meet needs where we can meet needs. And no, we can't meet every single need of everyone out there. The point is that the posture of our heart would be a generous people to care for those in need, which is, by the way, if we could roll back a couple thousand years, it's part of how the gospel just and the church just exploded in the ancient world. Rodney Stark, a historian, um, talks about how Christianity just exploded and exploded into a world where in this Roman culture, this was the contrast he sets up. In this Roman culture, it was a culture where 
uh, everyone, Roman culture was known for this. You give your bodies sexually to almost anyone, but you give your money to no one. Where Christians showed up on the scene and said, no, no, I'm going to give my body to almost no one, but I'm going to give my money to almost everyone. And the gospel just took off and the church exploded. Because the part of what made Christ compelling was a generous community, a generous community who would open their homes to strangers. Hebrews 13, 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The word hospitality, the reason I called it a brotherly love, welcoming the outsider, is because um, the word hospitality is a compound word. It's the word where we, uh, where we get brotherly love, and it's the word for outsider brought together. Brotherly love for the outsider. This is what Jesus did on the cross. He extended the hospitality of God to strangers, strangers like us to make us family. This is what Jesus did. It's why we open our homes to our neighbors. It's why our dinner tables are not closed communities. At least they shouldn't be. It's why so many sojourners do open invite for Thanksgiving. You need somewhere to go? Come, feast around our table. Because our dinner tables are not closed communities. At least they shouldn't be. It's why we partner with organizations like Houston Welcomes Refugees to take what we have been given by Jesus and extend it to others. This is one of the fundamental markers of a Christian community, that you'd receive it from God, and out of the overflow of having received from God, you'd offer it and extend it to others. So we're back to why this sermon today. If this is not a fundraising capital campaign sermon, what's the point? Here's the point. Advent is coming. Advent is coming. The season where we take, this time of year where we take four weeks and we prep our hearts to celebrate Christmas Eve, the birth of Christ on December 24th. And here's our hope for Advent. Here it is. This is what all this was building to. Then in the middle of this busy season, in the middle of the rat race that is December, in our context, in our culture, in the middle of that rat race, maybe we would just slow down that we would just slow down and enjoy, enjoy the generosity and the hospitality of God. Don't you want that? Like, don't you want a soul that is able to just slow down and take a deep breath of the grace of God, the generosity of God, the hospitality of God? I do. I am tired. My wife, last night, I am tired of getting to December 26th and looking back and going, man, I just wish we would have just slowed down and just enjoyed it a little bit more. I just wish we hadn't got so caught up again and we've got to do this and do this and do this and we didn't take time to just breathe and enjoy the season for what it is. I want this to be the year where my family and our family slow down and just enjoy the grace of God. And that we might, through our enjoyment of it, be more ready, able, and formed into a community who can offer it and extend it. The generosity of the Father and the sending of the Son. The hospitality of the Son and dying to welcome outsiders. That we would delight in that. We enjoy that. We'd extend it to others. That's what this sermon is about. 
us being prepped and able to take a collective deep breath and that we would breathe deep of the well of God's grace, of God's generous and hospitable grace this Advent season. Let's pray. Father, I, I am asking that we would be able to just slow down and that this might, this Advent season might be a season where, where we just, our souls can just take a deep breath and we wouldn't have to go a thousand miles a minute every minute of every day and we can just delight in you, delight in your sending of your son, delight in the son's coming and dying for us to take outsiders and make them insiders. I pray we'd be able to breathe. And I pray that this season, this corporate season of Advent, would maybe set a trajectory for our lives. And maybe it would set a trajectory that says we're, we're, we're done with a rat race. Of course we're going to work hard. Of course we're going to do our jobs. Of course we're going to fulfill responsibilities. But, but I'm going to live a life where my soul can breathe deep in you. Maybe that would be us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.